0: You're listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 3800 Marlton Pike. For more information, check out circleofhope.net. I'm telling stories. The stories give us space to kind of move around. And they're able to, to convict without being manipulative. And they're able to speak to, uh, to us all in different ways. And again, we're expanding our sense of ours. So I'm telling three stories that go all the way back to Bridget. I'm gonna go right to our, we have a blog at circleofhope.net called Celebrating Our Trans Historical Body because we're remembering these people all the time. And Bridget's day was just Friday. So I'll start with her, a story about her so you can know a little bit about her. I actually have a few stories to tell because the Celts love storytelling. They love stories. And some of them are so strange that they might even be true. Um, but even if they're not exactly factually true, like that never happened then there's no way to tell, I'm going with them. I hope you can go with me on Bridget's stories, a couple of amazing stories about her. Some of them are absolutely factual. Um, others of them are just so fantastic, I had to tell them to you. Then I'm going to tell a story from the Bible about Mary and Martha in Luke 10 famous little exchange with Jesus, and then I'm going to uh, tell a story about Nicole Jordan that she told, well, she told me, and, and I, because and I, uh, we want to bring it all the way to the present. It's, it's ours in a lot of different ways, the Bible, our ancestors in the faith, and uh, even us right now. So let's start with Bridget of Kildare. Today, uh, I'm sorry. Friday was is the traditional feast day to celebrate Bridget of Kildare, who lived from four fifty one to five twenty five, more or less. She was a crucial figure in in fifth century church, particularly in Ireland. Bridget was a convert to the faith, a nun, an abbess, and the founder of several monasteries, most famously at Kildare. Her powerful office as the abbess of Kildare, an office which held the powers of a bishop until the 12th century, made her an unusual and somewhat controversial figure. She's often depicted, oh, there she is, with a bishop's crozier, that hook, because she had that kind of symbolic power, and that's very rare for a woman if if you haven't thought of that yet. Her father was a pagan chieftain, and her mother was a Christian a slave. It was thought that Bridget's mother was born in Portugal, but was kidnapped by Irish pirates and brought to Ireland to work as a slave, just like St. Patrick was a slave in Ireland as well. Bridget's father named her after one of the most powerful goddesses of the pagan religion, the goddess of fire, whose manifestations were song, craftsmanship, and poetry which the Irish considered elements of the flame of knowledge. But Bridget spent her early life cooking, cleaning, washing, and feeding the animals on her father's farm, because she was the daughter of a slave. She lived during the time of Patrick and was inspired by his preaching, so she became a Christian. When Bridget turned 18, she stopped working for her father. Bridget's father wanted her to marry a fine husband but Bridget had decided that she would spend her life working for God by looking after the poor, sick, and elderly. Bridget's charity angered her father because he thought she was being too generous. When she finally gave his jewel-encrusted sword to a leper, her father realized that she would be best suited for a religious life. Bridget finally got her wish and entered an intentional Christian community, call it a convent or a monastery. News of Bridget's good works spread, and soon many young women from all over the country joined her community. Bridget founded many convents all over Ireland, and the most famous one was built beside an oak tree, where the town of Kildare now stands. Kildare means Church of the Oak. Around 470, she also founded a double monastery for nuns and monks in Kildare, and that's kind of the crazy thing, that the woman would be leading the men in the fifth century. A sacred fire burned in Kildare, reaching back into pre-Christian times and continued for at least a thousand years. Scholars suggest that priestesses used to gather on the hill of Kildare to tend their ritual fires while invoking a goddess named Bridget to protect their herds and to provide a fruitful harvest. When Bridget built her monastery, and church in Kildare, she continued the custom of keeping that fire alight. For her and her nuns, the fire represented the new light of Christianity, which reached Irish shores early in the fifth century. In Bridget's time, the number of her nuns who tended the flame was 19. On the 20th day, Bridget tended the fire herself. Some say even after her death. She got the land for the monastery at Kildara, which is what they call it in Irish language, from the King of Leinster. Here's one of those great stories in a very special way. She had found a place that would be ideal for her new convent, fertile land, by a lake where they could get water, but for the tricky fact that its ownership was of the King of Leinster. Bridget met the King of Leinster and and a band of horsemen returning from a hunt She approached the king and told him she needed the land. He asked her how much she needed, and Bridget replied that all she asked for was the amount that her cloak would cover. Amused by the strange request, the king agreed, and she laid her cloak on the ground, and four of her sisters took each of the corners and started running in four directions. To his amazement, the cloak grew and spread as far as they ran. Before he told Bridget to make them stop, they had covered the rich green acres known today as the Karach of Kildare, or St. Bridget's Pastures, which is almost 5,000 acres. Her cross, she's holding it in the icon above, is a famous symbol of using ordinary things to show God's love by sharing one's time and labor. Like the famous story of her weaving a cross out of a out of flooring to demonstrate the gospel to a dying man. Here's one version of that story. A pagan chieftain. Y'all know what pagan means, right? Just non, non-Christian. So it literally means people. Just different people, non Christians. A pagan uh, chieftain who lived near a, a dying man, who lived near Kildare, was dying. Christians in his household sent for Bridget to talk to him about Christ. When she arrived, the chieftain was raving. It was impossible to instruct this delirious man. Hopes for his conversion dimmed. Bridget sat down at his bedside to console him. As was customary, the dirt floor was strewn with rushes, straw, both for warmth and cleanliness. Bridget stepped, stooped down and started to weave them into a cross, fastening the points together a sick man asked what she was doing, and she began to explain the cross. And as she talked, his delirium quieted, and he questioned her with growing interest. Through her weaving, he converted and was baptized at the point of death. Ever since then, the cross of rushes has been an important symbol in Ireland. That's all the time we have for Bridget right now. Let's move to Mary and Martha. Luke 10. Will someone read us this this, these few uh, verses Luke 10 38 through 42 as Jesus and his disciples were on their way he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened up her home to him she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made she came to him and asked Lord don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and won't be taken from her. Now here's a story mostly imagined about that moment. Martha never lived down that moment. She had been pegged. And who, of all people, had done the pegging? Jesus himself. How did he get beyond that? Now she was a worrier. Now she was upset forever. And all this from a man who clearly told us not to worry. That was the hardest part for Martha. She was devoted to Jesus' teaching more than her sometimes flighty younger sister Mary. It was Martha who learned about Jesus first, the things that he was saying, the sick people he was healing, the authority that people said he had. Martha was the one in the marketplace gathering news of the Nazarene prophet before Mary knew anything about him. Martha had memorized every half sentence she could collect. To be fair, it was Mary who received him to the house this time. But Martha had made the introduction The heat from political fires was too hot in Jerusalem and Jesus needed a place to dodge the authorities. The first time he came to the house, it was by Martha's invitation. She heard of his need of a place to stay near the city and eagerly offered her home in Bethany as a retreat and safe house through the contact she had made in the movement. The first time Jesus stood in her house, smiling gratefully but visibly weary, Martha confirmed every exciting rumor she had heard of this man without asking a single question. She knew by the look of him that the things people said were true, and she put her house and all her wealth at his disposal. She did not hesitate. There was not a shred of worry in her then. And what's more, what else could she offer? What more could she risk but everything she owned? She had restored the house to much of its original glory through her shrewd management of the family finances. Her baby brother Lazarus might as well have been an actual baby when their father died and left the business to him. Fourteen going on four, they used to tease him. Lazarus was honest and diligent, though, and after a season of several years in which the business floundered and their mother tragically followed their father in death, Lazarus and Martha had completely recovered and in fact surpassed their father's previous position, increasing the stock and controlling prices of nard in all of Judea. Eventually, it became clear who the brains of the operation was, and local traders started coming directly to her to cut the biggest deals, knowing that speaking to Lazarus was, at best, indirect, and at worst, a waste of time. Martha held the purse strings. But she was frugal and refused to hire any servants for simple housework. She enjoyed the humble work and spent her time in chores filled with prayer. Perhaps the relative secrecy of their fortune and her ostensibly indirect control over it guarded her heart from being consumed by love of money. A man would most likely turn his soul toward the fortune and away from God, but this did not happen to Martha. She offered her house and money to Jesus and his movement without hesitation and no regret. (coughs) What else was it for? She thought. And how could she lose what she was so good at building? If they lost some money, there would be another opportunity. How could anything be so bad as after mother died and she had no idea what she was doing? No, that was long ago, and she was confident now that even if the Romans seized the house, they would figure something out. But as for but as for that, she doubted they would ever find him here or know anything of his presence. They had taken great precautions. Peter was amazing at this point in devising a way in and out of anywhere without being seen. When she said that thing, it was mostly a joke. Mary was so consumed with what Jesus was saying that she sat right down among the disciples instead of arranging for their comfort, and especially Jesus' comfort, as Martha was so doing. It was supposed to be a gentle reminder to Mary that there was work to do, and Martha needed her help. Martha could be angry at times, and, and usually with Mary, for exactly this sort of behavior, perhaps absent-mindedness, But she wasn't even mad this time. She was just excited to have Jesus in the house again carrying a basin of warm water to set beside him, she said over Jesus's shoulder as she caught Mary's eye, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. The conversation seemed to pause in a perfect timing around her half jest, and everyone heard what was meant mostly just for Jesus and Mary, who sat close to him right at his feet. Jesus turned to her, and everyone turned to her. And Jesus said, those words that left her feeling so pegged, the one she never lived down. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. She was furious with him then. Mary has chosen better? How has she chosen any different than me? Martha thought. Her fists clenched and her teeth were set as she turned around without response. Embarrassed, she retreated to the other room where she sat down bewildered. But she couldn't bear to direct her anger at that marvelous man. So all of her fury slid off her shoulders and landed on her sister. Leaning back in her seat, she could just peer through the door and see Mary there gazing up at Jesus, who had so easily moved on to another subject. How dare she? Does she she think she can be a disciple too? Does she not see that that room is full of men? All men, except for her. There she is in the place of honor at the master's feet. What kind of rabbi is he anyway, letting her do that? Abruptly, she stood up brushed off her apron, and got back to work. Her hospitality would go on without her sister's help. But later that night, as she sh- as she stared into the dying fire, embers chasing each other in boundless race, she returned to nursing her wound. Mary would never have even known about Jesus if it weren't for me. We would have nothing to offer him if it weren't for me. There would be no comfort, no food, No house. But the attack on Mary didn't work. Her thoughts returned to where they had been all evening as she washed Jesus and the disciples' feet clean from the dusty road and fed them fresh-baked bread. Jesus was right. The reason it hurt so bad to hear him say those words was that they were true. She knew what needed to be done, and that was the problem. How could she learn his new way if she was so good at her old way? Her mind was so full, it was almost as if she could feel it bulge as she tried to fit the image of Mary sitting at Jesus' feet into it. Jesus thought Mary could do it. The answer was yes, Mary did think she could be a disciple, and Jesus agreed. Mary also be sent out, like the 72 men who had gone out in Jesus' name, healing the sick and proclaiming the good news, it almost hurt to realize that this wasn't impossible. And creeping behind the possibility of Mary was the even more impossible thought that she too might be sent likewise. Martha dreaded the growing realization that after making so much of herself despite the obvious disadvantages, she might have to master something else. But with the master sleeping in the next room, the dread seemed not so dreadful. If she could corner the southern market on Nard, why couldn't she too cast out a demon? Give me time, she said aloud to the fire. Give me some time. Last story. Nicole Jordan, as told to me by her and woven into an imagined chronology. (laughs) Written in the first person, though I am not Nicole, uh, names of everyone but Nicole have been changed. Uh, I have not tried to imitate Nicole's amazing storytelling voice, so I'm not doing an impression of her now. And you'll have to have her tell you the real story herself, because I made most of this up. It's just the idea, a scene that she told me about, that I built a little story around, that I think is true to her experience at her her job. That's where it takes place. You should have known Nicole before she was church, Ron said to Billy, as we walked into the parts department of the Toyota dealership where we work. Billy had just been fired after working there for just a few months. He laughed uncomfortably. He was recovering from what might have been one of the worst moments of his life, though his life had been pretty rough, so I don't know. She used to be way different, Ron said. She never would have been hugging you on a floor like that. The crowd was scattering from what would have been a much more gruesome scene if I hadn't been there. Billy shuffled out of the management office, unable to hold back his emotions. His tears were like kryptonite or radioactive radioactive waste in that place. The maintenance garage of Toyota is not a touchy-feely place. I didn't see him come out, but Tonio ran to me to my desk. Nicole, Billy got fired, and he's crying. It's bad. We walked around the corner to where a group of guys stood awkwardly around <laughs> Billy, who was trying to hide, but failing miserably. They all looked up at me with looks of desperate confusion and relief. Their expressions all said, Do something, Nicole. (laughs) I didn't break my stride. I just walked into the center of befuddled men, opened up my arms, and received Billy's clean sobs on my shoulder. I closed my eyes because it was too dang uncomfortable to be (laughs) hugging this 19-year-old kid in the middle of the floor with everyone watching. His sobs were intense, but short. And as they began to subside, I opened my eyes to see that most in the circle were turning away, either to avert their eyes or to go back to work. The situation was sorted. Nicole was taking care of it. My role as shop steward had evolved into garage mother. There were no other women candidates for either job, and only I could do the latter. Billy came with Ron and me to the parts department. I kept my arm around him, sat him down on my chair, and got him a cup of water. Ron sat down across from him and tried to cheer him up. This sucks, Bill. It really does. But you know what? you got better things to do than deal with this crap around here. Everyone leaves eventually, and they're better for it. Staying sucks the life right out of you, and everyone who stays hates it. I cracked a smile to hear my optimistic kung fu line in Ron's mouth. He continued, Tommy's just making room for his cousin's boyfriend, and at top rate, it's bullshit. It's bullshit, you know that. We know that. You're a good kid. You do good work. You'll find something else, something a lot better than this. You'll be alright, no matter what. Thanks, Ron, Billy said quietly. When Billy left, Ron sidled up next to me and gave me a little elbow nudge. What do you think of that? (laughs) Think of what? I feigned ignorance. Of the pep talk I gave Billy, what did you think? I used some of your lines. Pretty good. I broke into a wide smile but didn't turn away from the computer screen. For some reason, I couldn't bear to see him looking at me, seeking approval. I'm not gonna lie, it felt good. <laughs> Later that day, after an epic grievance meeting with Tommy Triomfo, the maintenance manager who had fired Billy to make room for his cousin's boyfriend at top rate in obvious violation of shop policy, I slumped back into the chair in the parts department. They denied everything and I didn't know what to do. Pedro, a newish guy who had been there when Billy was crying, noticed my mood from across the floor and came over to me. Yeah, right, Mama Nicole? He said. Yeah, I sighed, resting my chin on my head, on my hand. Don't let them get you down, Mama, Pedro said. You know what they say around here you've got better things to do than deal with all their garbage. Even if you have to leave, you'll be better for it. Staying sucks the life right out of you, and everyone who stays hates it but we'll be all right, no matter what. Is that what they say around here, I asked? Yeah, I've heard like three people say it today, Pedro replied. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be all right, no matter what. We'll be all right, no matter what. I repeated the end. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net